welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard as always. Um, just want to make a quick little announcement before we get into our conversation today. Uh, you may have noticed, if you're a regular listener, that we took a little hiatus here from about early October until, well, basically last week. And... Um, I'm not, you know, normally the type of person who would take a couple of months off here without saying anything, but the reality is that we've had major changes in my world. My wife and I welcomed our second child uh, into the world in early October, so we've been kind of reeling as our lives have become ever more intense, ever more complicated, and of course we've been dealing with a lot of issues related to that, related to just day-to-day life and the complications of uh, being an adult and having kids and trying to to do a job and then a second job and all these other things happening. So anyway, um, there's probably a lot more to say. And uh, those of you with whom I communicate directly or who are emailing me, I'm probably able to answer more questions if you have any. But uh, for now, I'll just say that um, I'm back and I plan on being able to produce these podcasts once again on a regular basis with the uh, high quality that uh, I know you expect and that, well, I expect of myself. Let's turn to our guest today. I'm really excited to speak with him. Somebody I actually have been meaning to get on this show for mm, like a couple of years now, but you know, life has intervened and events and whatnot, but he's here with me today. Very excited to speak with Mike Preisner. Mike, uh, first and foremost, is an Iraq war veteran, an outspoken Iraq war veteran, and we're going to speak to him about his experiences and all of that, but he is also a filmmaker, a podcaster. Uh, The film Gaza Fights for Freedom, really, really important. I would check, I would uh, recommend you all check that out. The podcast podcast eyes left he is a co-host that is at eyes left pod and uh probably you all know him from the empire files or many of you know him from the empire files where he is a producer and a writer uh you can follow him on twitter at mike preisner mike welcome to counterpunch radio hey thanks so much for having me so thanks for coming on and for speaking with us because well i mean there's a number of things happening that are obviously relevant to what it is that we want to discuss here. Uh, we're speaking, and we're essentially speaking more or less on the verge of war with Iran, depending mm-hmm. on how things go, depending on how much of a degenerate this degenerate fascist wants to be. <laughs> and so we're waiting, and we're questioning how this is all going to play out. And I'm excited to speak with you because I wanted to get a sense of the the, the people in the military, the psychology yeah. there, what brought them there, what your experiences were. So let's begin with that and help us to understand how did you go from just a regular guy in the U.S. to finding yourself on the ground in Iraq? Yeah, well, you know, and I think the first thing to point out is that I joined the Army when I was 17. I shipped out for basic training on my 18th birthday, which was June 2001. So four months prior to the 9-11 attacks. Um, I was actually still in training when 9-11 happened. I hadn't even gotten to the regular army yet. So I was a part of this generation of soldiers who had gone into the military with kind of no belief that we would ever go to war, right? I mean, the only, the most recent war and recent memory was the Gulf War, which was seen as just a bunch of soldiers going and sitting in Kuwait and not doing anything. Um, And then the only war in our memories part of that was Vietnam, which was so far away that it seemed like, oh, war is a thing of the past. And with new technology and all that stuff, you know, we'll, we'll never see a battlefield or anything. Um, And so myself, you know, me joining was, I think a combination of things, just like I think is, I think the most common story is this, you know, you have a combination of um, just American culture, which is so militaristic, 
which, you know, you see the glorification of the military and veterans and soldiers and even war and violence. Uh, you see it just glorified everywhere. It's like the thing about American culture, like, you know, uh, you know, gunfights on television and, and flags flying and all these things. And so it's like we're just so indoctrinated with this worship, real worship of the military. Um, and then on the other side, you don't really see anything else to make of yourself, you know, going I, you know, didn't have didn't qualify for any college scholarships. I didn't uh, have a way to pay for college. I didn't see any kind of you no know, career path that interested me. And so, like, you know, the kind of social pressure of what are you going to do when you graduate high school? Um, you know, is a combination of those things. I saw no life for myself uh, after high school, but you know, I saw life for myself in the thing that we're told since birth is like the best way to make something of yourself is going into the military and selflessly serve and, and all of that crap. Um, but I know today to, to be crap. So, you know, I joined, I think most people in my basic training had similar stories. In fact, you know, more severe stories, people coming from more severe poverty, like, uh, you know, guys in my platoon basic training would say things like, well, I was living in my car. So joining the army sounded a lot better or I got kids and I don't have health care, so I had to join the army. And it was all just these types of stories. Um, I think for the post 9-11 generation, which we can get into, because now we're in like the post post 9-11 generation, you know, I think there's a lot of people joining because they wanted revenge and they wanted to kill someone and all of that uh, bullshit. Um, but my generation was one that was like, you know, we're going to get some college money, we're going to stay stateside, get some job training, we're going to get out in four years. I think a big uh, thing to point out, which we can also get into, is that, you know, most vast majority of people who join the military join planning on getting out as soon as their contract is up after four years. And so it's, you know, a means to an end. It's I'm going to do this short stint here, then I'm going to, you know, it's going to set me on a path to do something in the civilian world. Um, but, you know, so I so that was my kind of how I got in. Uh, and I was in kind of like a stupid um, intelligence job where I just was supposed to, like, operate this, like, air radar aircraft stuff. I didn't even know what it was. Like none of us in the job actually knew what it was. And even when we were in school half the time, we were like, what is this shit? Um, so that was like, you know, it was like everyone got tricked by the recruiter into signing up for this thing. But anyway, so 9-11 happens. And then, you know, really quickly, you know, things changed. You know, like there was, uh, you know, all of a sudden racism became just a, a core element of everything our commanders and stuff were saying. Um, everyone started you know, thinking that it was time to go to war somewhere. And then all of a sudden, like the Iraq stuff started started popping off where all of a sudden every, all, we, all the language was was turning towards Iraq after Afghanistan had been invaded and everything. Um, and so things started to change quickly, like within a matter of, you know, honestly, within a matter of two weeks, we were, you know, we were like, oh, there's no chance we're going to go to Iraq. And then, you know, two weeks later, we were in it was desert camouflage sitting in Vincenza, Italy, waiting to get on a plane to be part of the invasion force. So I was one of the, um, you know, first people on the ground in the north of the country as a part of the initial invasion of Iraq and, uh, you know, ended up being there for 12 months, even though we were uh, we were told we would be there for, you know, maybe two months tops. And that, you know, the thing that we we're all me and all my my friends are saying is, is oh, like we're not even going to everyone is saying we're not even going to see an Iraqi person. So like you're just going to sit there, do nothing and you're going to go home. It's going to be like the Gulf War. So uh, things change pretty quickly. You know, that job I told you that I was assigned to this intelligence job, there is no use for it in Iraq. And so after like the first week, it was just packed up. We never touched it again. And it just collected dust waiting to get blown up or something on the base. Um, and then me and, and my buddies who uh, were never supposed to be, you know, within 30 kilometers of a front line ended up doing things like uh, convoy, convoy security and security details. 
um, ground surveillance of just like every random thing that people needed to be done because there is not enough soldiers, right? There was kind of the unanticipated uh, outcome of the Iraq war. No one expected, you know, it was like the arrogant rich politicians like, oh, this will be easy. We only need to send this many people. And so, you know, I got a kind of very, you know, uh, different window into the war than I would have had if I had gone many years later in that job. Um, but over the course of that 12 months, uh, you know, my opinion of the war and the government and the military just really started to fall apart. You know, the stupidity of it all, the inhumanity of it all. Um, and, you know, I would say that at that time, like, you know, pretty much all of us who were there were like, why are we here? This is absolutely pointless and wrong. And, you know, we just want to go home. And so, um, I would say that I was pretty lucky to be around people like that because we were not the types of people who were there to go shoot someone. And so, you know, chasing down whatever bullets were coming from or rockets were coming from, we were pretty much just like, let's just uh, keep our head down, run away if anything starts happening and and um, try to get out of here. So I think that um, there's, of course, so many details and uh, things to elaborate on within that experience. But um, I think that the number one thing that that turned me was just um, you know, of course, sympathizing with the Iraqi people, uh, realizing that I would be doing the same exact thing if I was in their shoes and, uh, in fact, more. And it was, uh, you know, so the, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to have, uh, to be, to think about being killed by incoming bullets or rockets, but it's another thing to, uh, think about being killed by them, but by like not blaming the people for doing it, being like, damn, I would be doing that also. I would be trying to shoot a rocket at my base also, or I'd be trying to shoot me also. Um, and so kind of really identifying with the, the people that we were told were, were terrorists for shooting at us. You know, all of us are pretty much like, um, you know, I saw Red Dawn like this. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're living in Red Dawn right now. Um, so, yeah, so I just so I came home kind of like frustrated, angry, felt like we had been you know, are used as can like are been totally lied to and used as cannon fodder in a way that like our lives meant nothing to the politicians, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld. They were obviously, you know, liars who, you know, had just such open connections to oil companies and the military industrial complex, you know, Halliburton and all that stuff. So it was very clear to us that they were gaining a lot. We were, you know, losing everything. And um and yeah, and so I was I, that was around the time of stop loss. And so all of my friends that I had to, our unit got stop lost, meaning that when your contract is up, you're stuck in the army, you can't get out. Um, I fortunately had to have a major surgery. And so I, I was I absent from, they took me off the stop loss rolls, but all of my friends who were supposed to get out of the army at the same time got stuck for another several years, sent back to the worst part of the war for like 18 month deployments, uh, you know, came home very different people. And so kind of, you know, that post-war experience of seeing it destroy my friends, some of them be, you know, wounded terribly and all of that stuff. And so all of that anger I had and feeling of betrayal and everything, like I didn't know what to do with it. And I was extremely mad. I hated the army. I hated the Bush administration. I hated the war. Um, and then it wasn't until like, I didn't even know that there was an anti-war movement. And so shortly after I got out, uh, I, someone was passing out an anti-war leaflet and I was like, oh damn, like I'm against the war. And I was just in the war, you know, this is like 2005. So it was like, things were still heating up and everything. And so that, that sealed it. And then, so I went to my first anti-war action, started going to the, this is when there was big actions being organized in Washington, DC. And so I was living in Florida at the time. There'd be, we'd organize convoys of cars to go up to DC for these big national mobilizations. And, um, you know, the end of the story is that I went to my first big mobilization in D.C. and I decided to wear my army jacket 
like I saw in like the movie Born on the Fourth of July, like Ron, they all all the Vietnam vets wear their army jackets to the anti-war protests. So I did that not thinking I was going to see any other veterans. And as soon as I got there, I saw a guy with the same combat patch as me. And I ended up, you know, meeting dozens and joining hundreds of other veterans there at that demonstration, that march on the Pentagon. And so it was then that I realized that, uh, you know, I could do something. My, my, all this, all of everything I had gone through didn't have to just be this terrible thing in the past. I could use it as a tool to kind of influence others and, and make a more powerful stand against the war, uh, you know, wearing that same uniform I, I hated so much. So your experience uh, came first, and only then did you discover and embrace a sort of left anti-imperialist politics? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I really didn't know. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is like the early 2000s, right? And so we didn't even really have, like, internet in the barracks. And so, like, I was, I was, like, looking for commentary on it, whatever, but, like, I didn't really see anything. You know, it was like whatever we could see on the evening news in our, in our rooms. Like there, that's, that was like the, the access to information we had. In fact, the only thing I saw that I agreed with that influenced me is right before we're leaving for Iraq. Like the moment we're leaving is when the Oscars were happening. And when Michael Moore gave that big speech at the Oscars denouncing the war, I was like, oh shit. I was like, I agree with that. Like, that's right. And like, what is like, I appreciate that. Well, it was like, not at that time, I rem- but it stuck with me. And so I remember when I was in Iraq, I was like, oh, the one guy who made any sense now that I've, I've seen all this stuff, like the one guy that made sense was Michael Moore. Like he was right. What he said prior to us going. And so that was my only frame of reference of an anti-war movement. I didn't see any demonstrations. I wasn't into any left literature or, or, or figures or anything like that. It was just purely like I um, was kind of trying to figure out imperialism without any frame of reference or any uh, any materials to help me along that path. And so it wasn't until I was found the movement and started meeting people and the and anti-war organizers and other socialists that I began to put an ideology to it. I just knew from like a moral standpoint that what we were doing was was wrong and that there was obviously it was being fueled by corruption and special interests and all of that kind of thing. Absolutely. And the reason I asked the question in that way is because you and I are basically the same age. I think we're like a couple mm-hmm. of months apart. And mm-hmm. and um, Iraq was the thing. I mean, Iraq right. was the thing. The Iraq war was the thing that, that formed everything for me. It was it mm-hmm. was what it was what led me to left politics. It's what le- led me to an under uh, to begin to question the nature of imperialism, the nature of all of these issues that led me to all of the other things that I've discovered since then. And I think that that is mm-hmm. very much true for, our, you know, for the generation of, of people who were, you know, coming out of high school around 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Iraq was really this formative event. And so I guess the question I have for you is to to what extent were people in the same age group also kind of discovering some of these same ideas along with you? And then the follow-up to that is, how would you contrast that with the people who came after you, younger people who came after that time period? Yeah, well, there's definitely like the phases of it, right? I mean, so so the guys who are my age and the guys who are in the army when I joined, you know, like I said, they were all like, this is a means to an end. This is so I can have like a job with benefits, not have to do anything. And then all of a sudden when Iraq, popped off it was like oh like it's it means something very different to be in the army and not just for active duty i mean reservists got called up national guard got called up people who were in like the honor guard which is like the ceremonial like marching band that like just marches around dc for like show like they got called up and sent to iraq and they're like we're not supposed to be doing this um so it like really was a big reality check you know when things start going wrong for the u.s empire they just pull everyone in and they wouldn't let you get out and all of that. And so I, I was a my generation of soldiers was like there was quite a lot of discontent. There's quite a lot of anger. I mean, that's why you saw 
desertion skyrocket, AWOL skyrocket, conscientious objection skyrocket. Um, you know, I was one of just many people in the military who, you know, took a difference, not just tried to get away from the military, but tried to take a stand in uniform against it. Um, and so, but I think in large part, even ones who weren't like political or ideological, were just like, why would I die for this? This is completely pointless. I have no reason to risk my life for someone like George Bush and Dick Cheney. Um, and they just saw no, no point to it whatsoever. There was a, um, you know, and those people ended up just like, you know, not, just kind of trying to stay out of everything, not trying to do anything, trying to get out of deployments. And if they were deployed, just like, I'm just going to like try to get out of everything possible. Um, and then, which includes like lying to your command about stuff that you're supposed to be doing. Um, that's something that happened with, with me to a small degree, but other units, like entire units would just lie. Like, oh, we're supposed to go on this patrol. They would just go, you know, go out one gate, come in the back gate of the base, and then five hours later, tell their commander, like, yeah, we went on this patrol, nothing happened, it was fine. But the whole time they were just like sitting, you know, watching DVDs in their in their uh, room or something like that. Um, you know, with me and some of my friends, we had got tasked with this stuff that we really got a distaste for, thought it was wrong and stupid and pointless. And so, you know, for for a good amount of time, you just started lying and saying, yep, we did that, we did that, but but we hadn't done it. Um, but then you had this generation of people that were like the you know, it's, that's not that's not to say that there aren't a sector of people who join who are like the true, um, you know, the true believers who believe we need to fight and kill our so-called enemies and just straight up like, you know, some sociopath people who just are racist. They hate Arabs. They hate Muslims. They want to shoot them. And doesn't matter if they have a weapon or they're shooting back. You know, they just want to shoot somebody. And so that the military provides a space for those. Once the Iraq and Afghanistan wars really started heating up, you know, any kind of like asshole guy who wanted to shoot someone, the army provided a space for that, you know, join, join the infantry. And then soon enough, you'll be in a position where you can, you'll be able to shoot someone. Um, so there was like a kind of different crop of people who came in, not to say that the majority of people were like that, but it accommodated those types of people. But then you had all these people joining, knowing that they were going to go to war um, and joining to go to war, to, do, to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. And even among that generation, the people who joined specifically to go to war in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, those people became against the war and became war resistors and all that stuff. And so, you know, you had people who would resist during deployment. They'd come home on mid-tour leave and just refuse to go back and go to jail instead. And so even the people that were like the most gung-ho, patriotic, vengeance for 9-11 people, they very quickly saw through the lies of, of the, the U.S. government saw the reality on the ground and said, well, this is not not worth it. I don't want to do this. Um, but then you have, I think, the generation that's in now, right? Um, the war in Iraq had, you know, the U.S. still technically occupies Iraq, but the occupation in terms of what it really means to occupy, like manning traffic checkpoints, raiding homes at night, patrolling the streets, shooting people, walking down the street, like all this stuff that the U.S. occupation is. The U.S. occupation was like a retreated to like the green zone, embassy zone now. So Iraq wasn't a deployment spot anymore. The Afghanistan war after the troop surge in which the U.S. was essentially defeated uh, going to Afghanistan, the tempo is so low. There's how many people who go. And if you go, you're, you're holed up on a base somewhere where you're relatively safe. And so over the past few years, it's kind of like the pre 9-11 generation joining again, where it's people who don't expect to be going to war. Um, it's like a, the means to an end. In fact, the army just in 2019 set a record for its recruitment quotas. And even the commander of recruitment came out and said, yeah, we, we recruited so many people. 
uh, because there's so much student loan debt. So it was easy for us. And so you have this generation, these people who don't see a future, who can't pay for school, or if they've paid for school, they can't pay off their debt and things like that. And they see the military as an option because they say, well, the Iraq war is over. The Afghanistan war is basically over. Um, I'm not going to be faced with a kind of reality of getting my legs blown off or my face burned off or something like that. Um, but you have that coupled with the fact that younger people today are just more politically conscious. And so I think that the combination of uh, the composition of the military today is people who are in worse economic situations than my generation was when we joined, um, but also have more political awareness, I think is uh, kind of the reason that the outpouring of opposition to the Iran war from within the military is so much greater than I saw during the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, which is uh, pretty impressive because it was big at that time. Well, that's an interesting point. So can you expand on that a little bit? What are you hearing about uh, resistance to the war within the military? Because this is, of course, something that we can we can speculate on. But uh, to the extent that you can give us an insight into that, would be appreciated. Yeah, well, this is really just with my small reach, right? So, you know, through our Eyes Left podcast, you know, we get, you know, what, like, uh, you know, we, we get, you know, maybe 20,000 listens an episode. Uh, we have, what, like 12,000 followers on Twitter and our Instagram. But just with a small message we put out through that platform, that very small platform that, um, you know, we have a base in the military that listens to it and followers in the military. But just with that really small platform, we put out a, a statement saying, if you want to refuse uh, to take part in what's going on in Iran, or if you see this as your wake up call, to now get out of the military because you now realize what you're a part of, uh, please contact us and, and we'll give you some help. And for like 72 hours, like all I was doing was uh, being in touch with people in the military who had responded to that call. And so dozens and dozens of people, and I don't mean just two dozen, like several dozen people um, reached out and said, I want to file for conscientious objection. What are my options if we get deployed and I'm not a CEO and I just want to go AWOL, all of that. And so that was really overwhelming. And I really wasn't even uh, prepared. And that's just uh, people that were contacting me directly versus the people that we just said, contact the GI rights hotline. The GI rights hotline, which provides a, a expert counseling and advice to service members about their rights, their phone was like ringing off. The, they, they were like filled to capacity and all the, the people that they could talk to. Um, and so just with that small platform that we had putting out, the number of people that responded was so huge because we've been doing this work for a long time. You know, during the, the height of the Afghanistan war, where, you know, things like wounds to genitalia had increased by like 95%. So every soldier going to Afghanistan was like, oh, damn, the most common wound is like getting your genitals blown off from stepping on a mine. So people were really thinking like, oh, shit, do I really want to go to Afghanistan for this kind of pointless, endless war? Even during that, we had a very big public campaign that got mainstream media coverage. We were going to bases to do outreach, leafleting on base, telling people they didn't have to go to Afghanistan really hitting a wide audience. And we maybe had like, um, you know, five or so people from that whole, you know, months long campaign to get soldiers to become war resistors against the Afghanistan war, people who are in units that were deploying, like we'd go to a base where like thousands of troops are going to Afghanistan and make sure every one of them got a leaflet saying you don't have to go if, you, if you're on the deployment list. Um, and a very small number of people actually answered that call, although many people did and became conscientious objectors and got out of going on that deployment. But the number of people that responded to this was just so overwhelming. And it really showed me that there's just a different uh, crop of people in the military today, a different level of consciousness. And I think that, you know, for the, the duration of the Trump administration, yeah, Trump was obviously this horrible figure that most people in the military hate. 
but there were, they weren't really confronted with the reality of having to go to war for Trump. And as soon as reality hit, as soon as it was like, you know what, war can happen fast and war is happening. As soon as that reality hit, everyone was like, what is my way out? Because there's no way I'm dying or killing for Trump. Indeed. All right, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about um, what's going through some of these 18 and 19 year olds minds right now as they're watching the news on TV and thinking about what what they may be facing. And then uh, if if we could maybe get into a little bit uh, about the historical legacy of the kind of work that you're doing and the important work that was done uh, in previous generations and how you're building on that. So we'll, we'll talk about that and a whole lot more with Mike Preisner. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We right back. Now over there in Managua Square with America made bombs falling everywhere. Kill women and children and animals too. These bombs are made by people like me and you. And we told that we hold a big stick over them. Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Mike Preisner. You gotta listen to the podcast, Eyes Left, Eyes Left Pod on Twitter. Uh, very, very important as we were discussing before the break. So, Mike, the work that you're doing is so critical. I mean, <laughs> Organizing within the military uh, is just about as as critical of anti-war work as you can do. So I want to ask you, to what extent have you read up on and, and understanding the historical antecedents to what you're doing? Because the history, the history around the Vietnam War and war resisting in Vietnam is, of course, very, very important and plays a role in, I would imagine, some of the work that you are doing today. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that uh, history is really what is the reason why 
we do do what we're doing. Um, why we started Eyes Left Pod as like a specific way to reach um, people who are in the military, who are developing politically uh, in a way where we can intervene at times like this when a war is starting. Of course, there's the developing people politically in the military to bring them over to, to socialism and anti-imperialism, but also at certain moments it could prove uh, like a key influencer, which I think it did in some way with this current Iran crisis. Um, but of course, you know, this history spans like the history of war in general, I'm not even just talking about the United States. As long as there has been uh, imperialist war, uh, there have been sectors of the military that mutiny, that rebel against it, that join the other side, join the oppressed, the people who are being attacked. Um, and in some cases, that was the factor that led to revolutions happening. Look, in the Russian Revolution, it was soldiers that were the reason that uh, the Russian Revolution was successful. If you look at the revolution in uh, Portugal, it was a, a mutiny of soldiers, you know, another imperialist country, a mutiny of soldiers. That's the reason that Portugal was able to overthrow its fascist government. And so throughout history, I mean, in, in countries, both imperialist countries, uh, in inter-imperialist conflicts and conflicts of colonizing countries and others, you always see a sector of the military um, that can develop a political consciousness and that can be decisive at certain key moments. Of course, in the United States, there is a, a great history of that as well um, in every conflict. I mean, we're talking even like, you know, the U.S. war on the Philippines, where you had black soldiers defecting from the U.S. side to the Philippine side, fighting with the Filipinos against the American soldiers. Um, and so there, there's like the, the history is rich and it's important uh, for people to learn about. But as you mentioned, um, Vietnam is like the greatest example. Uh, during the Vietnam War, there were so many different types of anti-war organizing. And I think there's a misconception that it was just because there was a draft, that because there is a draft, you had all these people who didn't want to be in the military, and so they became radical anti-war activists. But the movement within the military of soldiers, anti-war soldiers, um, was not just draftees. It was a lot of volunteers also. It was people who realized through the course of their experiences what the war was really about and how they felt about it and the role that they wanted to play. Um, and so uh, resistance took so many different forms. I mean, one of the um, things that like is very exciting is like the uh, work of Andy Stapp and the American Servicemen's Union, which is like a union of anti-war soldiers they started, which apparently had tens of thousands of card-carrying members, where they had an anti-war newspaper that they distributed to soldiers on the front lines. Like helicopters would be bringing this anti-war newspaper to give to soldiers, like infantry troops who are in the trenches. Um, and there was actually hundreds of anti-war papers that were written, published, and distributed by active duty service members which explicitly were saying refused to fight in the Vietnam War. Um, and so you had that kind of like, you know, traditional grassroots style, like almost like union salting type organizing. But then you just had like straight up mutinies where you had entire like companies of infantrymen who were like the frontline fighters who would just sit down on the battlefield and say, you know what, we're not going on these missions anymore. Um, you know, and uh, sailors who would like sabotage their equipment, they would like break all the radios on their ships. And so missiles couldn't be launched in Vietnam. And these are all people who through their experience uh, realized that the, the moral stand that they, that they needed to take. And it was so powerful. In fact, it became so widespread that it, it, it hindered the war effort the Vietnam War, the top commander in Vietnam said something to the effect of like half our half our army is mutinying and the other half is on drug, just like sitting in Vietnam and smoking weed and refusing to go on patrols. That was another form of resistance. Uh, and so the generals just could not depend 
on the military anymore. The ground forces in particular, um, you know, people were refusing deployments in large numbers, even when they would try to deploy the army to put down anti-war protests. There's entire companies of National Guardsmen that refuse to get on planes to go repress anti-war demonstrations. And so there is such an organic and widespread discontent within the military that I like outnumbered the people that were pro-war in the military. And so the U.S. had a crisis on its hands. Um, and so that's, it really, it, it stopped their ability to wage the war in such a large way. Um, and so that's, I think that's the most important historical lesson. But even since then, we've seen similar types of, of organizing take place. And that potential has always been there. Nothing on the scale of Vietnam, but of course, the scale of like kind of the political movement in the country and the scale of death in Vietnam both played a factor in that. Well, and that's part of the reason why I'm bringing it up, because I don't think that people uh, today have a good sense of what a large-scale war would actually mm -hmm. entail, right. because a war with Iran is a large-scale war that will really be a regional war. It will involve numerous countries. It will involve, I mean, it, it would be of a scale that's difficult for most people who are alive today to really grasp, at least people in the United States to grasp. And so the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of work that would need to be done would absolutely be on a scale equal to, if not greater than what we saw in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, um, you know, the estimates from the military is that a war with Iran would be like 10 times as bad as a war with Iraq. Um, that's, I think, maybe a conservative estimate. But like, you know, the the Iraq war at its at its height of bloodshed, you know, like there was, you know, about maybe 100, 150 U.S. troops a month being killed there. And, you know, you probably had several people a day being horribly maimed, losing their legs, being burned over their entire bodies, stuff like that. So that was and that was like a huge shock. I mean, that that level of U.S. casualties was so shocking to the American public and to the military, where it was like, you know, you are you're going to drive outside the wire. You are guaranteed one of the vehicles is going to get blown up. I mean, it was like such a shock to to everyone that that's when you saw a lot of people you know, refusing to go back, refusing to go. And like, cause you were kind of confronted more with, do you really want to die for this? Do you really want to kill someone from someone for this? When it's not less theoretical, it's less hypothetical. It's like, no, this is going to happen. Uh, you know, how much do you really believe in this? Um, and so I think the Iran war, you know, the kind of outpouring of resistance from within the military to the Iran war had something to do with that. I mean, people realizing that, they would kind of bear a brunt in a way that they that didn't in the Iraq war. But I think it was more just the kind of political, you know, revulsion to Trump and what he did. You know, and I think that it was the casualties hadn't the American casualties hadn't started yet. I mean, once they start and they start happening, that's when you're really like, oh, this is really real. Do I really want to you know, lose my legs for this? But I think that the, the opposition was just purely because people saw through what Trump did, saw it as a as a terrible uh, act, something that just kind of put so many lives in peril because this guy is just like belligerent. And then all these, you know, rich and privileged, you know, generals and lobbyists and stuff were like pushing him to do this thing. I think that it just, um, you know, is encouraging. I think that one of the examples is, you know, like, of, of course, there's standards on foreign policy, but just as like a barometer of where people are at, you know, Bernie being, of course, um, you know, the strongest came out with the strongest opposition to the Iran war, uh, considered, you know, like the most critical of U.S. foreign policy, the military industrial complex and things like that. Um, Bernie Sanders has gotten more donations from active duty service members, mostly lower enlisted people, much more, more than Trump, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, all of them combined, like Bernie has gotten more. And so if you think about that, that like the, the, the mindset of people in the military who are 
who identify with someone who calls himself a socialist and identify with someone who has such harsh critiques for U.S. foreign policy um, that when Trump's about to get you in a war, that like, where are those people going to fall? And so I think that that's another component of what we're seeing today is just kind of the the popularization of socialism and critiques of capitalism and all of that that have uh, you know come to the fore in the past couple of years. I think that's very well said. And I have to I have to say that I think one of the other aspects of the kind of work that you're doing is in preventing the young people from ever joining in the first place. And, and mm-hmm. that that's where I have some experience as a former public school teacher in New York mm-hmm. City. Uh, I saw military recruitment all the time in the schools. Yep. I mean, it, it's the most it's it's the most common thing you can imagine in public high schools. And it's a very it's a very prickly uh, conversation to have as a teacher, because there are certain lines that you have to abide by and whatever. But I just wanted to I just wanted to bring that up because I wanted to get a sense from you if you could and I, I realize you're not you know an 18 year old kid today mm-hmm. but if you could to for those of us who have no reference point for it what's going through their minds right now I mean there's uncertainty they don't know that they're going to Iran or not mm-hmm. going to Iran but they know that they might be and they know that they might be headed into something that they didn't think that they signed up for so help us to understand what they might be thinking now and then secondly how we might help them if they're in our family if they're our nephews if they're our brothers or whatever it might be mm-hmm. yeah well you know it's interesting because you know having your experience as a high school teacher you saw, how early they start the recruitment process. It doesn't just start when you're 17, when you can legally sign up for the military, which you can. I mean, honestly, I was in Iraq with a guy who was 17 years old. Like as long as you turn 18 within your first like year or whatever, and he had to get like a waiver, but he, we were in Iraq, he was 17. Um, you know, I was only 19, so I wasn't that, I didn't think it was a big deal then. Cause I was like, Oh, we're almost the same age. But, um, you know, thinking, look, being in my thirties now, thinking back to what it was like to be 17, it's like, damn, like the decisions you make when you're 17, look at the world, God. like you're a kid, you're, you don't know shit. Like, um, you know, not shit talking on like youth, you know, who are very smart and politically aware, but, uh, you also, uh, the responsibility of making a kind of decision, like of shooting someone you shouldn't have when you're when you're 17. But the recruitment process starts much earlier, officially. Now we're not even just talking about indoctrination and propaganda, but the military starts like logging people, tracking people at like age 12 or 13, depending 100%. on your state. Absolutely and like right. JROTC like starts in middle school. And so you can be brought into the actual formal military recruitment process before you're even a teenager. Um, and so, you know, there, there's that. It, so I think that it, it actually has been deemed by, um, you know, uh, anti-recruitment, you know, organizations that it's it's coercive to youth in a way that it's not even that they're making their own decision to join. It's that they've been like uh, tricked into making this decision. And that's why so many people, once they're in the military, they just hate it. Like, honestly, the the number one thing people are trying to do in basic training, like a quarter of the people are trying to get out of the army. Like they're, as soon as they're in, they're like, oh shit, this is not, I realized I made a mistake and trying to get out. So I think that a lot of, you know, there may be a lot of, I think that I can't say what's going through um, people's heads right now, but I think that the number one thing that's going through people's heads, especially young people in the military today, is I think what was going through my head, you know, when 9-11 happened and when, especially when the Iraq war was starting, is that, you know, when you're a young person, you're looking at the military and all this stuff, it's all very like abstract to you. It's like, oh yeah, I'll go in. Maybe if we go to war, I'm ready for it, whatever. And it's all just like, it's not real, you know, especially when you're joining at, you know, 17, 18, like none of it's real. Like it's, it's just like a fantasy 
it, it's just abstract, as I, as I said. And then once you start getting issued the uniform, once you start having to do the training for, okay, we're going in two weeks, this is all of the training. It's like once it starts, once it becomes real and you're like, oh shit, like war is real, it happens fast. And all of a sudden, like reality kicks. I think that's what everyone uh, was going through when, when this stuff happened with Iran is people that never really had to confront what would I do if a war started. They're all like, oh, I might be over there in, in a week. I, so I really need to start thinking about what I'm going to do if a war started. And so I think that's, um, you know, like I said, in the past post 9-11 generation, everyone went in thinking that like, oh, I'm going to go to war. It's going to be bad. I'm ready for it. But and, and then once you're there, you realize, oh, this is not what I thought. Once the first casualty happens, you're like, oh, this is not uh, the way it was portrayed to me in, in video games and movies and recruitment commercials. Um, but those today, you know, really had no um, never had to confront this before in the way that they are now. And I just want to get a sense of how uh, your years after the military have colored your perspective. Looking back on it, uh, how do you how do you um, how do you view that time now, like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years later, versus what you were feeling when you first got out? Oh man, um, you know, I think when I first got out, it was just like a lot of you know. It's first of all, it's just like a it's a difficult personal adjustment to having been in the military, been through that experience and to kind of try to, uh, socialize yourself back into the real world and, you know, go to school and not feel alienated and all of those things. So like, um, of course, like psychologically and emotionally, there's that side of it that of course is a long process. Um, but then there was just like, you know, there was just a lot of anger and rage. And I think that was like the dominating thing then, you know, angry at my, at the president and, and all of that stuff. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the period in the immediate period afterwards, I think one of the reasons that it was uh, hard is because, you know, the war was just getting worse. You know, I was fortunate enough to where, um, you know, when I was there, the Iraqi resistance was not uh, nearly as organized as they got by like 2005. Um, so it was like, you know, one guy with an AK squeezing off, you know, an entire magazine and then throwing the weapon down and running away. Um, whereas like the actual, you know, they actually became far more sophisticated and organized. And so with the body count started going up, you know, it was difficult for me to um, be demonstrating against the war, but with the war just getting worse and more brutal. Um, and so knowing that it was, you know, uh, friends of mine and also knowing what the Iraqi people were going through as the war intensified, just, you know, was very, you know, it was difficult to go to go through that experience. But I think that, you know, the thing I learned that I I didn't know then when I was in the military is just how much the military would just lie to you and abuse you and throw your life away. Um, and then I think that a big component of that, which is important for soldiers to understand today, is not just in the war they're going to do that, but after the war. And so for a long time, my my work was focused on helping service members who, because you know when when this the war had blown up for them and they needed everyone to go to war. They were stop-lossing everyone, whatever. No one was able to get out of it no matter what. And that included for post-traumatic stress disorder. So every soldier coming home who was like really fucked up um, could could not get that as like, couldn't get treatment. If you tried to report it, you got ridiculed. You got actually punished by your command. And then that's why the suicide epidemic started because it was people who were just forced to go back over and over again 
we're not given any treatment and we're in fact punished for seeking treatment. So a lot of the organizing we did with active duty soldiers was organizing for the right to mental health care and organizing for the right of uh, PTSD to exempt you from another deployment. And so it was a different form of war resistance was saying, if you have any PTSD, you should legally be exempt from going again and you have the right to resist to go back to Iraq or Afghanistan on that basis. Um, but it was just, you know, it was horrific. And so the, um, just the kind of personal stories I was ex exposed to, um, family members of soldiers who had committed suicide, uh, were just, you know, it was really harrowing and it really showed, you know, I thought I knew the military getting out. And when I was in, I was like, yeah, the military is dumb and it sucks. And in my first year is getting out as I got as bad. But then like in the years after I was like, oh, it's just really fucking evil. They don't give a shit about you. And they will like really leave you to die in a closet somewhere. Um, and so that, you know, I wish I knew that then how much I, I, I my one regret is not is waiting till I got out to start organizing against the war. You know, when I was in, I spoke out about it to my friends and stuff, but I didn't use my position in the military to try to to try to form any kind of resistance or speak out while I was in the military to the media or anything. And so um, that's why it's encouraging when people today, when they say they want to file conscientious objection, you know, it's always, well, you can also do this publicly and you can also inspire others to do the same thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but. <laughs> no, abso <laughs> absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. And I think it's important because it, uh, especially, you know, in the 21st century in the United States, the military is so far removed from the public consciousness that mm -hmm. the 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 everyday existence of somebody in the military is just something that most of us don't have a reference for. And um, I guess that really kind of leads me to my final question. And I don't know whether you can even answer it, but I just wanted to throw it out there yeah. to you. Um in your, in your opinion, what, if anything, can those of us who are obviously not in the military and not necessarily connected to people in the military, what could we do to aid in the sort of efforts that you're engaged in? I mean, if it's just emotional support or if there are particular organizations that you can uh, point people to or what would you what would you tell the people who want to help? you and people like you doing this sort of war resisting work? Yeah, well, I would say that everyone does have a connection to someone in the military. I mean, it, it's like it's our class that gets recruited and sent. Right. And so even if you don't know someone directly who's in the military, you know, someone who knows someone directly who's in the military. And so like you're not very far removed from people who are serving in uniform right now. Um, and so your reach, even though if you think it's a small reach, and you don't have a connection to soldiers. It, it is there. You know someone who knows someone who's in the military. Um, and at key times, like when this Iran stuff is blowing up, all those people were willing to listen. And so I think that's why we got such a response from uh, the eyes left call for people to contact us if they wanted to resist is because people just shared that someone who saw it, who knew someone in the military, shared it with them. And so it, it, the reach got the reach became very large once, you know, everyone tried to say, does anyone know anyone? And then uh, someone did know someone. And so it's like, um, you know, it was interesting because at the anti-war protest last night, this was an emergency action, uh, you know, anticipating Trump responding to the Iranian uh, missile retaliation. Um, you know, when I was speaking at that march, I asked the crowd, I said, uh, who here knows someone directly who is in the military right now? And it was almost everybody there. Like the as I was actually surprised by the response. It was so many people there. Um, and so I think that what uh, what those people can do, even if you don't think you know someone directly, is um, when in general, like in normal times, people in the military aren't really going to be open to hearing about their option for resisting or fighting Trump from in the military or any, anything like that. But at moments like this, 
everyone is looking for this kind of information or at least thinking about it. Um, so they're the opportunities where we can really capture the attention of, of service members. And so, um, you know, there, of course, there's the work that we've been doing. There's a group called Courage to Resist, which helps war resistors. I think the number one thing to spread to people is the GI rights hotline. And so, of course, just disseminating that information, saying if anyone in the military needs help, call the GI rights hotline. They have great counselors that are very much um, oriented towards getting people out of the military and the variety of options you have to get out of the military. Um, but I think, honestly, the number one thing people can do is just be a participant in the anti-war movement. Um, like I was the reason that I went on the path I did is because someone was passing out a leaflet and I got that leaflet. I connected with them. I connected with the group. I went to the demonstration, saw that there was a lot of people there, was inspired by it. And that was the end of the story that everything from that on was was on that path. And so we need people to be the people passing out the anti-war flyer. I mean, if that person hadn't volunteered that day, who knows how long it would have been before I, I got a flyer and, and what the path I would have been on then. And so it's like um, the things that you do that you think are small and insignificant, even just showing up to a demonstration or volunteering to do outreach for it, um, it has a bigger impact than you think. Because the people that were like me when I was 19, like they're open they're looking for it, but they just haven't been reached yet. And the more people we have who are participating in the actions that can reach them, the more people are going to be reached. I think that's very well said. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Mike Preisner, thank you again for coming on the show. The podcast, Eyes Left, on Twitter, at Eyes Left Pod. Of course, uh, The Empire Files, and uh, follow Mike on Twitter, at Mike Preisner. Mike, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch. Really appreciate that and all your work you're doing. Thank you so much, man. I love the show. Keep it up. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, as always. We will chat again real soon.